Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 11th episode of 2023. But before we kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, the platinum sponsor of Fiber Breakfast, and our gold sponsors, Nokia and Vetro. On Monday, the Biden administration proposed a 77% increase in funding for NTI in support of its efforts to oversee billions in new broadband grants. This funding increase is a huge endorsement of Alan Davidson's leadership by the administration, and this funding level is more than double the historic run rate um, of funding for NTIA. Also on Monday, the Fiber Broadband Association submitted comments to the Office of Management and Budget, affectionately known as OMB, supporting the goals of Build America, Buy America, what we like to call BABA, to produce fiber optic cable in the United States. However, the implementation needs to be realistic as it relates to our existing supply chain, which really boils down to three key recommendations we're making. First is the manufacturing process to make optical fiber and fiber optic cables can and should occur domestically. Second, limited and targeted waivers should be provided for all inputs and components for fiber optic Uh, cables and fiber connectors and network electronics that cannot be practically sourced in the U.S. And lastly, we should permit manufacturing for all inputs and components of fiber optic cables, fiber connectors, and network electronics to occur in countries with whom we have free trade agreements. Right after today's Fiber for Breakfast at 11 a.m. Eastern, we'll be hosting our third episode of our monthly webinar series, Where's the funding? If you missed our last episode with NTIB Director Evan Feynman, I highly recommend that you go to the FBA website under events and watch the replay. This week's episode is Intro to the Capital Stack with David Hartland, the president of ITC Holding Company. This should be a very informative session, so you're not going to want to miss it. Speaking of can't miss events, please register today for our next Regional Fiber Connect workshop and train the trainer class in Oklahoma City on April 6th. These workshops have been incredibly popular, so please register today. And that brings us to today's Fire for Breakfast session with Joey Winder, the Director of the Capital Projects Fund with the U.S. Department of Treasury to discuss the Treasury Department's multi-billion dollar investment broadband. So last week on Fire for Breakfast, we heard from Jamie Linderman with industry research firm Omdia, who shared with us her latest research in a session titled not your grandpa's cable company, how today's MSOs are moving forward with fiber. In short, her research showed that cable, the cable industry will be fully converted to all fiber networks within the next 10 years. And that brings us to today's Fiber Breakfast session with Joey Winder, the director of the Capital Projects Fund with the U.S. Department of Treasury to discuss the Treasury Department's multi-billion dollar investment in broadband. Joey currently serves as director of the Capital Projects Fund overseeing $10 billion program at the U.S. Department of Treasury and is helping to ensure that all communities have access to high quality modern infrastructure, including broadband, 
needed to access critical services. He previously served for nearly 13 years on Capitol Hill, most recently as, as Senator Ed Markey's senior policy advisor, where he led a team covering a wide range of issues, including telecommunications and infrastructure. Joy also worked as then Representative Markey's legislative director. And prior to working for Markey, uh, Joseph served as the counsel for the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. He received his BA from Wesleyan University and graduated magnum cum laude from Harvard Law School. Welcome, Joey. And for audience, please type in your questions as they go and we'll work them into the Q&A at the end. With that, I'd like to think, turn, turn things over to Joey and provide a quick overview of the Treasury's program. Excellent. First of all, thank you, Gary, for, for hosting me here today. Uh, I'm super happy to be talking to your audience about what is an extremely timely and exciting topic. And so if we can go to the next slide, I'm just going to do a few minute presentation about what our program is about, its origins and where we are today. And then Gary and I will have a conversation. So the Capital Projects Fund is funded by the American Rescue Plan. So uh, to step back for a second, I think everybody knows there are all these different sources of funding out there in the federal government for broadband. And they've all come from different pieces of legislation. That's how Congress has designed it. And so I know you talked to Evan Feynman, you know, my friend Evan last week about the BEAD program. Remember that money comes from the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The treasury money predates it. It comes from the American Rescue Plan, which is one of the COVID relief bills that Congress passed. It included a provision that said, you, Treasury, have $10 billion allocated by formula to states to directly enable work, education, and health monitoring. The whole point of the Capital Projects Fund is to say, look, if you were unconnected during the pandemic, your lack of connection was was exacerbated, right? You were already not able to be a full participant in our society without high-speed internet pre-pandemic. And then when COVID hit, that was the only way to be connected to the economy and to society. And so the Capital Projects Fund is intended to be a down payment on the Biden-Harris administration goal of achieving universal access for all Americans. And so what we've done here at Treasury is created three presumptively eligible uses for our funds. The first is broadband infrastructure, right? It's, it's as simple as creating access, high-speed, reliable internet access for all Americans. The second are digital connectivity technology projects. That's a fancy way of saying laptop and public Wi-Fi, right? There was a lot of efforts. There are continue to be a lot of digital, excellent and important digital equity uh, programs out there that are designed to help people, not just with the issue of access, but with digital literacy and providing them the skills and devices needed to sign on. And finally, multi-purpose community facilities, because we all know that connectivity is not just in many communities about bringing access to your home. It's about creating places for people to be able to get online. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the first of the three presumptively eligible uses, which is broadband infrastructure, which is gonna be the vast majority of the $10 billion. Our overall goal as good stewards of federal taxpayer dollars is to ensure that our investments don't just last for years, 
but that they last for decades. And so we have been using, we have used a, what we think is a future-proof forward-looking standard so that our taxpayer, your, I should say, tax, all of our taxpayer dollars are used in the most efficient way. And so our build-out standard is 100 symmetrical. And so some people say, well, haven't you put on, put your thumb on the scale in favor of fiber? The answer to that question is, you got us. Yep, we did. And we have put our scale, finger on the scale in favor of fiber, which definitely plays well to this audience, given this is the Fiber Association. We though acknowledge that fiber is not perfect for every corner of the country, that there are topography, geography, excessive cost issues, and there are places where it is impractical and you're permitted to go to a lower standard, 120. The only other thing I wanna point out on this slide, which I think is important to note, is besides requiring 100 symmetrical, is we require all of our providers participate in the ACP, which is the affordability program at the FCC. Now, the good news is providers like the ACP and the administration um, was very successful in getting most of the major players to commit to having $30 plans be offered to ACP subscribers, which means that if you're an ACP eligible household, you're getting the internet for no cost, which is just tremendous. But I wanna emphasize that the ACP is so essential for two reasons here. One is the obvious reason, I'm trying to bring internet access to those that don't have it today. And affordability is a major barrier and the ACP helps overcome that. But the other, the, other, the other reason why ACP is so important is that we've heard from many providers that you know, they're making assumptions about where they're building out, about how many subs that are ACP eligible are gonna sign up. It's a revenue stream for them. It's part of their return on investments. And you know, you think, if you step back and you think about what my program's doing, what Alan's program is doing at NTIA, we're trying to address a market failure right, where providers didn't want to go to places because they couldn't make a profit. And so we're trying to incentivize them to go to those places with CapEx, uh, with CapEx subsidies to help build out. But the ACP is another piece of the story, right? It's, it helps with operating. And so, you know, I, I, it would be, I'd be, and I'm sure we'll get to it in the Q&A, but I would be remiss not to put a plug in for ACP, how essential it is on so many levels and why it is incumbent upon Congress to fully fund it moving forward. Good news is we're moving. So states got their allocations a year ago because our allocations were determined by statute. And to date, we have awarded states, 34 states, their plans that totals over 5 billion. And those states estimate that we're gonna connect nearly a million and a half locations, which is really tremendous. And this is just half the money. We still have to approve the other half, but we are moving along at a very quick pace, recognizing that again, our money are COVID relief dollars and the need for them to be on the street is now. The only other thing I, I'd add here, and then I'll turn it back over to Gary is, we're talking about having awarded $5 billion, but I can tell you there's a number of states where construction is already underway, right? They're past the point of putting bids out on the street and having them, be, having them be one. There's construction happening in Virginia. There's construction happening in Louisiana and other states. 
That means we are finally getting close to the goal of connecting these locations, these homes and businesses. And so that's probably the most exciting part about the program is we're going to see the results uh, starting to come to fruition in the coming months and over the coming years. And the impact is just going to be real. It's going to be large and it's going to be widespread across the country. And so with that, I will stop and I will turn it back over to Gary. Joey, thanks so much. And this is, you know, really great stuff. Um, you know, when I think about like all the buzz and the buildup to the RDOF program, which was $20.4 billion, and you've actually deployed as much as RDOF has in a fraction of the time. That's amazing. So, you, you know, you. Treasury hasn't traditionally been in the broadband subsidy program. So how is it that you're able to have so much success so quickly? Sure. I would give two reasons. I'm going to give part of the credit to states and I'll give part of the credit to Treasury. You know, states, what we've done, what this program does is empower states to make decisions, right? The pendulum has swung. Whereas if you think about BTOP and also you think about RDOF and Reconnect, you know, those are federally decided projects where the federal government is having a lot of say over exactly where the money's going to go. You know, with our money, the way Congress decided is that a lot of the authority, the power rests with governors, rests with states. And so by empowering states to address the critical needs that exist in their own communities, within their own boundaries, we're seeing very quick results because they know where the problems are. They know where the holes are. And it's not a one size fits all approach. The, the problems in Massachusetts are different than they are in Maine, different than they are in Montana and Maryland. And so we're seeing a range of solutions that are out there that are working to plug in these holes. You know, the other, the other thing I would say is I'm obviously, I can't not but two treasuries horn here. You know, we do feel an obligation given these are COVID relief dollars to move them fast. And I do think there has been a benefit in not having any, we'll call it bureaucratic history, right? Of running different broadband programs and how our program fits into them. When you get to create something new, right? When you've got a clean slate, in some ways it's easier to, to, to create it because you don't have any, you don't have any precedent. You could say, here's the problem that exists right now in 2021, 2022, 2023. Here's what the world exists, it looks like in our COVID or post-world, post-world, uh, post-COVID world. Let's put it together right now. Well, that's great. Um, so you guys were one of the first out of the gate with the 100 by 100 symmetric standard. Um, so uh, you provide a little bit of insight. Can but you can you provide you know some more of the thought process why fiber is so critical to administration and then also how are the states responding to that sure i'll answer the first part first and then how states respond i mean i think it's a very simple answer the speed standards need to continuously increase right there was a time my first when i got on the internet when i was in high school it was a 14-4 modem that was enough then, right? Now you need fiber. You got multiple individuals in a household or streaming different things at, at the same time. There's always more and more bandwidth constraints being put on our, on our service. And so 
I don't want to, you don't want to have to fund something that you have to rip out of the ground or improve or upgrade in a couple of years. Again, as I said earlier, let's make a long-term investment and get it right in a, over the long, long term. In terms of how states are responding, states are great. States are excited about our program. I mean, they're excited about the timeliness of our money. They're excited about the flexibility. And there are lots of providers out there, many of which are your members, who, are, who, who look at the 100 symmetrical standard and say, no problem. Happy to bid. Let's go. Well, I mean, certainly Wall Street feels that fiber is very accretive, so it's a good investment. Uh, so under the Capital Projects Fund, there's three programs for the states to help their communities. Um, how are you seeing the states subscribe to these programs? Are they typically taking advantage of all three? Depends on the state. You know, we have some states that are that are that are mostly or all broadband. We have other states that are leaning much more heavily on the other two categories. I think some of it depends on geography. You know, in the end, you'll you'll probably be able to see a theme, right? You know, there are states that have much larger access problems, and other states where you know they're sort of beyond that step and they're thinking more about adoption and digital equity and literacy. Um, so it's really a combination, and ultimately, it's it's the state's prerogative. We have states that have applied in all three categories. And some that you know just just in one category. But I could tell you that the majority of the money will be spent on broadband, on fiber, and almost all states have applied for at least some portion of their money to use for broadband infrastructure. You know, at the top of the hour, I'm going to be talking about the the capital stack. So when you think about um, the capital projects fund, and then you have you know other opera funds as well as you know rus um the art off you're gonna have b how how can someone leverage um the capital projects fund to be able to and leverage all these different programs to really be able to um get fiber out to everybody in their community sure well listen i i, I acknowledge you know every program is a little different and it does create a it does um require a little bit of education but what we're telling states as a starting point is, and states understand it because there's been so much education and so much stakeholder engagement, and frankly, so much cross-pollination across states and lessons being learned and shared, we're saying to states, make a whole plan, right? Don't view capital projects in isolation. Don't view bead in isolation. You might not know exactly what your allocation is, but every state I think has a sense of what they're gonna get at this point. Think about this in totality. Think about your RDOF grants. Think about your reconnect grants. Right? Think about all of this. Think about whatever money was used from the state and local fund, your ARPA funding. Think about whatever state funds are being used and make a holistic plan. The good news is, most states understand that. And that's how they're thinking about this in terms of waves, right? They're using our money and they might not be using it as a match for bead, but they're using it thinking we're gonna use it here. And then bead's gonna come and we're gonna use that here. And then there's where the art off and here's where reconnect could fit in. And then there's digital equity money. And so all the rest, you know, as they say, you need a plan, right? And most states are, have gotten that message and, and have a holistic plan. 
you know, we have a ton of audience questions. And so one of the questions is, you know, if you've been successful in 34 states so far, what states are behind? Well, let's not say they're behind. Let's just say that they've, they have not been approved yet. You know, part of the reason why we, we were able to approve, we've, we've approved this on a rolling basis, is some states applied before the deadline. You know, our deadline to apply was September, last September of 2022. There were some states who were very eager out of the gate, right, who applied right as soon as our application window opened. And that's why starting in June of 22, we started making awards, right? We did Virginia, West Virginia, New Hampshire, and Louisiana right away before the application deadline had even arrived. You know, it's more like um, college admissions, right? It was a rolling basis. We got these good applications in and we started approving them. The good news is that I would expect the majority, by the end of the year, but certainly even long before the end of the year, we will have awarded nearly all uh, of the remaining states and nearly all of the money. Fantastic. Uh, so one of the audience questions is, can you give an example of a state where the 100 by 100 speed requirement was waived and why the waiver was granted? You know, we've done very little, we've had very little waivers to date. You know, I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest factors that goes into whether 100 symmetrical is, is um, practicable, it's whether there's even, a, is that there's a provider that would bid to do it, right? I'm not, that's, that's pretty close to dispositive. If you put out to bid for 100 symmetrical and no provider raises their hand, right? And these tend to be extremely rural areas or hilly areas where, no one wants to lay fiber. And so those are the those are the type of situations. But you know, ultimately I think the market is in many ways the best indicator, right? Is that if the provider doesn't raise their hand to do it, despite these subsidies being available to them, that's very telling to us that there probably is no wireline provider that would be um that would wire an area. Necessitating a decrease in the speed standard. So one of the other questions that came in, you know, so you had your 16 states that haven't been funded yet. Are there any of those states that there is a irreconcilable difference between the state statutes and the, the CPF rules? These are great questions, Gary. Um, my hope is no. My hope is no. You know, our intention is to fund every state. We have, there is no intention upon my part or Treasury's part to not provide the full amount of money that a state has been allocated, right? Our job is to get to yes. Admittingly, as we start dwindling down towards the last states, you're getting some of the harder cases. That is true. Some of the plans that are harder to fit in with our rules, of course. I've told you how we've been approving these things and we've allowed the cream to rise to the top and we've been triaging and trying to as play the most approvable plans have moved quickly and so we are getting into some of the harder plans but i am optimistic that we will get every state's plan over the finish line that's awesome so one of the big topics that comes up that broadband providers you know that are applying for grants are really interested in is the post award requirements and to cfr 200 
can you share with us the issue and then how Treasury's thinking about that? You know, I was going to sure. throw this in here, right? <laughs> but. Sure. So uh, let me let me let me say two things. One, you know, in terms of post-award general compliance, and then I'll get to two CFR in a second, which is definitely my favorite topic. <laughs> definitely my favorite topic. Um, I didn't know what two CFR was until not that long ago, despite me being a lawyer. Um, maybe I shouldn't have admitted that on this, but you know, I never really practiced law. Um, so, you know, our compliance regime is robust, right? It's not as if we just, we just award a state and we say, we'll see you later. Right. I mean, we are requiring quarterly reporting by states on their progress and, and we require once at completion, they have to provide the long and lat of every location that's been served, right? Because we do feel an obligation to our federal partners, particularly the FCC and NTIA, to ensure that our federally funded locations are fed into the larger map, right? We need to have a, we need to have a global awareness of where all of our funds are. And so that's a, that is a reporting requirement that we take very seriously. I also want to add that it's not as if I sign a memo for 350 million for Texas and like we just like sign over a check, right? We make the award, but we send Texas nothing, right? These, this is a re reimbursement program that follows the Cash Management Improvement Act, which is to say that Texas comes to us I'm not, I'm picking on Texas for no reason. I, I think they've got a great broadband office on, down there, but I'm just using them as an example because I remember their exact allocation number in my mind. They will submit to us, look, we have these construction costs have happened. We're seeking reimbursement. We're seeking funds, you know, to pay, to pay the ISPs for the work that's done. That happens periodically over time, right? And so if somebody's, I'm not going to say it, but folks could read between the lines, right? If a state becomes wildly out of compliance, they might have problems, right? Because our leverage is that we still are holding on to the dollars. So it is incumbent upon states and ISPs to continue to follow our rules long after even the award has been made. Was that too harsh? No. So what, I mean, so it's, I mean, so that's compliance. Yeah. So that's compliance. And so I'm going right. to get into two CFR. Well, I mean, so there's the administration costs that um, you know people are complaining about, and there's also some of the other um, onerous obligations that make it difficult. Is that? I mean, how how are you guys thinking about that? And is sure. there so be... so two CFR. So the uniform guidance, you know, for those who don't know, is the Bible that governs, in general, grant-making by the federal government. And there's a lot of very important topics within the uniform guidance that help ensure avoid waste, fraud, and abuse of federal taxpayer dollars. That being said, there are certain, we recognize there are certain provisions in the uniform guidance that come into direct conflict with the intent of the program, right? Unlike, say, a road, a grant to a contractor to pave a road, right? You're giving them a grant, pave the road, they get paid when it's over, 
they essentially hand the keys to the road back to the state or the city, whoever operates it. You know, in this case, we're incentivizing an ISP with help with construction, and we're incentivizing them to then to first build and then maintain and operate a network with the expectation that they're going to earn a profit. That's the whole point. And so there are there are questions about program income and property and secondary procurement that we are close to providing uh, guidance on that I think will be very um, welcome by states and by providers. But to tease it a little bit, I just want to be clear, it is the it is our intention that providers should be able to make profits, that they will own the property, though acknowledging there is a federal interest. And finally, that these are fixed amount awards. And so the uniform guidance is good if, Gary, I'm paying you as sort of as an open-ended construction project or you're going to build a fire station for me. But you didn't give me a bid. You just said, it'll cost what it costs. And so the uniform guidance says, well, you have to provide me with all your bills. Otherwise, the federal government is going to wildly overpay. The brilliance of this program is these are fixed amount awards. And in a fixed amount award, the risk is borne by the provider, right? They're going to, they're going to wire out these many homes for this amount of money. And so we recognize, and the uniform guidance explicitly acknowledges that, that we wouldn't want to require once a provider wins an award for them to then have to go out and rebid for construction for materials that we know and assume that that provider has already built in what they think are the costs with the costs to them are going to be of the labor and the materials into their bid originally uh, joey so i can't let you go without can you handicap bob should we look up be checking our email next week or what when when should we see this guidance <laughs> god i hope soon i really do gary i taught i was we are we are we are finalizing uh the guidance with both our office of general counsel and with omb and i i, I really i really hope uh the draft guidance will be out uh very very soon well, well joey we i could talk to you all day um first of all Thank you for the tremendous work that you and your team are doing and the, the great success that you've had. And I, I'm looking forward to continued success the next $5 billion come out. So thank you for that. Um, you know, America thanks you for that. And for our audience, um, you know, please join us next week where we're gonna be um, speaking with about the 2022 Fiber History in the Making with Jeff Hainan, uh, the research firm Deloro. And basically, 2022 was a huge year for fiber. And now that the numbers are all in and the dust is cleared, Jeff's going to share with us how big a year it was and what the future holds for technologies, including 25 gig pond and 50 gig pond and 100 gig pond. So you're not going to want to miss that. So thanks, everyone. We'll see you guys next Wednesday. And hopefully you guys can uh, see me in about uh, 37 or 27 minutes on the Capitol stack. See you guys. <laughs>